Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Streams of Winter. Livestream 2. Melisandre of Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. We are Radio Westeros and this is our second live stream. Last week we looked at Jon Snow and today there'll be some overlapping because we'll be discussing the role of Melisandre in the Winds of Winter. And with me today is the other half of Radio Westeros. Say hello Lady Gwyn. Hello. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being back here with us again today. Um, very happy to see you. Excited to talk about Melisandre. Uh, hello also uh, from the past to folks that will be watching this in the future uh, on the pre-recorded audio video versions. And now I want to uh, take a minute to give a very warm welcome to our guest for today. Uh, everybody say hello to... Joe Magician. I am here. I have done one stream already. This is the second one. I swear I'm not going to lose my voice during this one. Um, hi, everybody. Yep. Joe Magician from the Joe Magician YouTube channel. Uh, also from the Maester Monthly podcast. Um, yeah. Earlier today, uh, did a stream with Aziz all about Blood Raven, which kind of connects with what we're talking about today. And it connects because you had Aziz on last week. So it's all it's all working. It's all spinning together. Yes, we're all one big, you know, it's all spiraling <laughs> together. Spirals! Oh, spirals. There we go. <laughs> okay, so yeah, there should be plenty of uh, plenty of opportunity for discussion about Melisandre and maybe a little bit more Bloodraven, if, uh, if Joe is very, very lucky. <laughs> There's so much about Bloodraven, you'll never run out of content. No, never, and uh, there does seem to be a little bit of overlap. So mm. before we get started, uh, I want to give a spoiler warning. We are spoilers everything, uh, books sample chapters the show here everything goes so well, on that note why don't we uh pass it back over to you yoke boy and get started okay let's start with some uh continuation from last week because we have joe's fresh perspective in a dance of dragons we got a nice surprise halfway through when melisandra was given a pov chapter do we think this was done as groundwork for her gaining a POV in the winds of winter? Where we might see John's resurrection? If so, how many Mel chapters can we expect? What do you think, Joe? How many how many Mel chapters for the winds? Ah, you guys, uh, I think you guys talked about this last week. Uh, Aziz pegged it. You guys pegged it at around one. I think that was what you said. Um, I'm a little bit more, I'm more bullish on Melisandre. Um... I I imagine when John comes back, even if I don't think the ghost John in ghost stick, if we get that, can last that long. And there's going to be so much action up at Castle Black. So until he returns, you definitely need the post stabbing POV. You need probably a POV where Melisandre's thinking about maybe bringing him back or getting to that point, and then maybe another one afterwards because. I, I think I don't know if George will have a John POV again. Like we had Catelyn POV, she became Stoneheart and gone. So there's a there's a real question there of how much we're gonna see from John. So I would say probably three, 
maybe more, but I would say three is probably a good number, if especially if things start moving towards the night four, like you guys were talking about. Um, I think I might have gone out on that on that limb of like three actually okay. because uh, uh, remember a few years ago um, when George kind of confirmed that Melisandre would be a point of view at the uh, I think it was the Guadalajara Book Festival mm-hmm. interview he was asked about Ashai and he said he wasn't going to actually go to Ashai but he might show it in flashbacks and he mentioned that he has a point of view character who might. Um, show flashbacks to Ashai in her chapters. Um, he used the plural term there, which, you know, I mean, not everything that George says in these interviews that he kind of says off the cuff is always 100% accurate. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think in that case, he would probably be thinking about the role Mel is going to play in The Winds of Winter and chapters was probably inaccurate. You know, so multiple chapters, and I think you're right. She's she's going to have to cover some ground there until you know, in the or if we ever get John's POV back, or we get someone else up there like Davos. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question, and I wonder about the resurrection again. We talked about it last week, but Joe, how do you see the resurrection of Jon Snow going down? It's um, I agreed with your take that. Um, the idea that, yeah, Melisandre does not know that Resurrection is currently working. That's a show-only thing. She only knows about Beric because of that interaction which they played up between Melisandre and Arya and they paid off. Um, if she does it, it, it's it's a really good question because it rolls into part we're going to talk about later. Like, how old is she? How much does she really know? And maybe this is like some spell buried in the back of her head she knows but uh there was something i picked up on uh when i was rereading the chapter for this and it's that it seems that the visions are starting to tell her that john will come back in particular it's the john wolf john vision again with all the skulls around it and there's a lot of a lot of resurrection ideas that are coming into her vision she's seeing them differently um, but maybe she'll start piecing them together. And one thing I've always liked as a sign that John will be in Ghost, like uh, most people think he will with a second life, or at least some people will, it's a fan theory, who knows, um, is that Ghost is always silent. But Melisandre has this weird connection with Ghost where she can make him come to her and like scruff his neck, which very few people are scared to do. If she notices that Ghost starts barking, and she has seen these visions, maybe she'll start putting it together. Maybe she'll use some magical imagination and be like, what is going on with that dire wolf exactly? That's a a really great point. And when we get Mel's POV, we, we begin to get a backstory. So why don't we talk about Mel's character and personality here? Her POV makes her immediately more sympathetic. It seems that she was uh, some kind of child slave who could have been split from her mother and sent to a red temple against her will, obviously. What can we say about this backstory? And and do we think more of the blanks from this backstory are going to be filled out in these um, male, potential male POVs that we've discussed? So do, do we have sympathy Lady Gwyn, do, do you find her sympathetic after after the the um, chapter where we saw her point of view? Ooh, yeah, that's that's a bit a bit loaded, but yeah, I mean, um, do I have sympathy for the person that she was? You know, having learned about her backstory, yes, absolutely. I mean, who wouldn't sympathize with? And you know, maybe wonder how how. Uh, a childhood spent as a slave might have, you know, impacted the person she became as an adult and and beyond. <laughs> She's very, very old. Uh, and also, you know, in that chapter, I feel like George did a really good job portraying her loneliness. So uh, she's she doesn't have any peers. Um, so in a sense, she's, you know, she's a very, very lonely character. And yeah, I have sympathy for her in select <laughs> very very finely <laughs> finely uh <laughs> focused places but, yeah george yeah. often cites this 
human in um, human heart in conflict with itself, and with with characters like Mel, you know, it's at, the reader's heart is in conflict with itself. You know, I kind of want to like her, but she does terrible things, which we'll be discussing through this episode. And Joe, you've got a, a question that you were going to ask about um, the sympathy for Mel. Yeah. Um, to expand on the, the the first question, I have more empathy, less sympathy. It's like I'm understanding where she's coming from. I don't have a lot of sympathy for the the kind of thing she's doing, the horrible things she may do in the future. But that this is a classic George thing where he's at least letting you into her thought process. Like one of his favorite things is like he loves saying that Tyrion's a villain. And like part of that arc is you're seeing how you get there as a person, even if you don't completely agree with it. And I think that's kind of what's going on with Mel and especially her thought process. I found it was super interesting on reread how she instantly redefines her visions. Like, hang on, <laughs> I have this quote here. Uh, it says, she had to be certain many a priest and priestess before have been brought down by false visions by seeing what they wished to see instead of what the Lord of Light has said. Like a page later, she does the opposite where John asks her about the towers and she's like, yes, that's definitely Eastwatch. And it's like, <laughs> that's not what you thought in your POV, Mel. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's, that's definitely not what you were saying to yourself like a second ago. Um, but in terms of why he's doing this, I, why do you think like, why is it important that you have empathy for Melisandre? What is What exactly is he planning for her hmm. that is so important that you see from her point of view? Like most people are going to cheer at the resurrection, but like, there must be something else if mm. you need to understand it. Yeah, mm. I think we'll mm. leave that as a rhetorical question because we're definitely going to be getting there later on. So I, I wanted to ask another question about her backstory. As Lady Gwyn said, George has insinuated we're going to see some of shy. You know, what's that going to look like? This is really exciting, isn't it? Because in the world book, we we get, there was a full page on shy, and, you know, every word was kind of gold dust. It was such a strange, dark place and of course, at the time, there's there's other characters, Lady Gwyn, who who was in the shy, perhaps when Mel was there. Well, I mean, she she might get to see, or through her through her point of view, we might get to see her memories of seeing characters like Marwyn or Quaithe, who have mentioned to have been in the shy. Uh, but personally, I would be very excited if there was some um, further sort of hints or, you know, mention of this um, ship in a shy that might give us, uh, that might possibly be Sun Chaser, the ship of um, Alice Westhill, a.k.a. Alyssa Farman, um, who sailed from Westeros and went west and then maybe ended up in a shy per Corlys Valerian, as we learned in Fire and Blood. So I'd like to hear more about that personally. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's so there's just so many possible great possibilities there. Joe, what what were you expecting from the shy flashback? Is it something that's going to be, you know, understated, or do you think that that this could be something really intriguing? I'm kind of thinking that if George shows it as a shy, that it's going to be um, very much a reference to his favorite Lovecraft stories, where there's like a bunch of people in masks chanting down in some weird room, and maybe that's where we see like the shadow binding and learning about it because that's the main thing that Melisandre has that many characters don't. She has true knowledge of magic and all this weird stuff and she can use it. So that would be the exposition I would think you would want to get out of a shy along with a lot of Easter eggs that that's her main. I mean, that that's a main reason for even seeing this Melisandre POV. I mean, we're going to talk about it in like a couple, a couple uh, topics down, but like you learn a lot about magic in this chapter and it's, not it's particularly short but a ton is in there yeah i think melisandre too too often gets uh, written off as just a pure charlatan but she does have legitimate skills doesn't she mm. as evidenced by the shadow babies okay let's move on to uh something theoretical i once made a theory that mel could be the daughter of blood raven and shiera seastar i found similarities between their descriptions in that of Melisandre, as well as other potential evidence, such as her aptitude for magic and being the kind of king's magical assistant. Um, other fans had different theories, too, about who she really is. 
And then I think it was season six or season, yeah, season six in the show. In the after the episode, D and D insinuated she was hundreds of years old. I think she said they said four hundred, which, if it was ca- book canon, would really debunk all of these theories, if that was true. But but it's it's a, a bit difficult to know when D and D are kind of citing specific quotes from George, or they're just talking offhand, exaggerating. Uh, you know, information goes back and forth, and it comes out a bit distorted. So. What do we? What do we? I'm interested to see what you think, Joe. Is there a, an identity mystery with Mel? Is is she someone significant, or is she, is she just the poor slave girl? What do you think? I remember reading Melanie C. Star and just thinking it was such a great theory. There was so much you pulled out that made so much sense, it, and especially the idea that um, that she sees Blood Raven and that he sees her. It would be such a cool connection between um, somebody that throughout most of his life thinks that he lost the love of his life if if she's still alive in some way in melisandre i mean that could be a powerful emotional moment for both of them i, I don't know what to make of what dnd thought thought about uh the 400 years thing she certainly um seems much older than she is i mean even the parts about her like not having to sleep and eat anymore and that relore gives her everything she needs through fire that seems to almost remind you of the undying of karth where they are kind of in a similar biological situation that would imply she's a lot older. Um, But I would definitely enjoy it if that was somehow revealed that there is a connection between these two highly magical and influential characters in the story. Yeah, so I guess it's wishful thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm in that frame of mind too. But say if she is hundreds of years old, doesn't that... open up different kind of possibilities where she could have she could have you know been around when the doom happened and stuff mm. you know is this something you thought about lady gwyn if she was really ancient well yeah i think you know the possibilities the older she gets the possibilities for who she could be become greater but they also become less kind of pertinent to the story itself you know to the main story because she's it would the older you you make her 400 years for instance it becomes less likely that she's actually someone who's been of any relevance to a song of ice and fire considering you know the 300 years is the entire history of the seven kingdoms so um i personally am of the opinion that whatever dnd said um it's you know it's very hard to tell whether they meant george said she was really old and they just assigned a number to that or whether he gave them a specific number. I I kind of think it's uh, more the former and that, you know, George probably said, yeah, Melisandre's a lot older than she seems and they were just went with a number that they liked, uh, you know, but it's hard to tell. It's impossible to tell. Uh, I, I would rather that she has some sort of relevance to the main story not that she doesn't, but I mean her her true identity, if there is such a thing that's revealed to us. Um, but maybe that might be wishful thinking. It's kind of like um, the, the Quaith identity mystery where it, <laughs> there's tons of possibilities, but which one would actually be worth the setup? And I think, I think your theory is the best one that would be worth it. But also, as um, Violent Messiah 666 says in the chat, the show said Blood Raven was a thousand years old. And we know he's like 125, so... Thank you, thank you. Well, there you go. It's just difficult. I, I guess. I guess um, as someone that put you know some effort into the the theory, I I just want it cleared up either way. You know, I'm not <laughs> someone that would grasp onto something when there's no hope. You know, but uh, I, I'm looking forward to the winds of winter so we can find out. So yeah, it would be Another nice to have reason. the muddied waters kind of cleared up, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, let's move on. And along similar lines, let's talk about Mel and glamouring. Mel uses a ruby to facilitate the Mance and Rattle shirt swap, causing a glamour explained as a trick of the light that makes people appear as someone else. But readers can't ignore the fact that Mel herself wears a whacking great prominent <laughs> ruby around her neck, front and centre, Tighter than any maester's chain, it says in the Crescent Prologue. 
Okay, so let's talk about what clues are there that Mel is glamouring. Let's get back to basics here. Lady Gwyn, what do you think? Okay, well, I mean, the biggest clue, and I mean, arguably this is kind of a, it's almost like an echo chamber, but you have uh, The Mystery Night, which was published a year before Dance with Dragons, uh, in which you see Maynard Plum, who is... 99.9.999% blood raven uh, glamoured wearing a giant moonstone Um, so this indication that if you're wearing a big big gemstone that it's an indication that you're doing this kind of glamouring magic and and he um, so that's I mean obviously that's a clue that works both ways um, to indicate glamours but um yeah, I mean, what else What else have we got, guys? Go for it, Joe. What do you think? Do you, do you know any of these clues? Um, well, there's one thing that I, I picked up on the reread was that as the, the glamour is working with Mance and fading in and out, like, it shines in particular ways. It gets dimmer and brighter. And we know from watching Melisandre through other characters' POVs, particularly Crescens, that this happens to her quite a bit. That her own ruby is not just stagnant, it's alive with fire, basically. So if if you take that as an example, that Mance's glamour is somehow triggering that ruby, then why wouldn't hers do the same thing when there isn't a Mance in this situation? Um, especially because it's also noted in this chapter, one of the mechanics, that it's possible for the glamours to be worse like when uh, Mance decides he doesn't want to wear rattle shirts gear and she's like, you need to put it back on or else everyone's going to see you. Well, maybe Melisandre has something in her, like in her dress somewhere in one of her secret pockets. Maybe she has some totem or some bones or some special object that she doesn't always have with her. Or maybe it like gets too far away and then the magic stops, starts to drop and then the ruby starts shining or something like that. And she notices because it says she does notice even when she put it on the, the real rattle shirt that as his glamour is starting to fade with the fire, she feels it personally. So yeah, she feels the heat of the fire. Doesn't she? It's an interesting uh, mechanics going on. I want to know more about it. And I would add that, where where you can tell that Mel is older than she appears, it says that she remembers her studies long before Ashai. This is a, this is a woman that probably looks in her twenties. Well, she she's yeah. like a supermodel. <laughs> she looks extremely attractive, and she's remembering these times long before Ashai. So you know that 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 kind of insinuates there's a large backstory. So. In the show, she took off her collar and she was very old, which is something we're kind of expecting. Patron Sister Winter asks if her true age will be revealed to other characters or just the reader, just us. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, I think that's a great question because really it it comes down to whether her age or previous identity, which is something I kind of touched on a couple minutes ago, whether they actually mean anything to the characters in story. Um, so is there a purpose for revealing it to everyone so that they can be like, oh, she's really someone relevant to them or someone that they've heard of? Or is it more just something that we will learn because like, uh, you know, we suggested earlier that maybe maybe she saw the Doom of Illyria. Um, so maybe she really is 400 years old and or more. And um, to us, that's just going to be kind of like, ooh, well, that's interesting. She really is quite magical. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it comes down to who she really was and how old she, she is, I think. If, if other characters started to realize what she was, which is really, an, you know, an old classic old witch you know a shriveled old Mm. witch under the glamour joe tell me what the other characters would would make of this you know because she's someone that's commanded a lot of authority and power from kind of how she looks so so what what would what would the reveal do to the common opinion of her that's a really good uh 
It's a really good question. Also, to go back, I thought of another cl- uh, hint that she's glamoring. When Stannis and her of the Shadow Baby, it's only Stannis that looks older afterwards. Mel looks unaffected. Oh, it's implied that that uh, that Stannis's life force, or she calls it his life fire, is being drained. Well, it seems to be both of them involved, but only Stannis is feeling the problems. Well, Stannis isn't wearing a glamour, so that's probably a pretty big hint that way. But I think that also goes back to what you just asked. This reveal would definitely have the most impact on Stannis Baratheon, especially because of what seems to be their sexual relationship and the, the trust he's put in her. And she actually mentions in, the, in this one chapter that, tr- that Stannis was also a non-believer at first, that she had to try really hard to get him on board and listening to her. And another big theme of this chapter is the idea of the trappings of power. If those trappings of power are gone, and Stannis sees through them and realizes he's been tricked, well, that could be the end for Melisandre. And maybe for Jon too, as he's been increasingly relying on her. This is all dedicated on her remaining the same supernatural figure. If that's gone, then why are people listening to her? Yes. I think the glamour says much and more about Melisandre's campaign. You know, there's this superficial veneer that she's holding up. I, I think that's got to fall apart one day. I think that's that's where the story's going in more ways than one. And we talked, well, Joe mentioned t- kind of totems earlier. In Dance, Mel talks about strong glamours, a dead man's boots, a hank of hair, a bag of finger bones. Hmm. Given Davos lost his finger bones... Is this a kind of harmless throwaway comment? Or is it a clue that Mel has Davos, Davos's bones and could glamour, glamour as him, you know, very strongly in the Winds of Winter? Joe, do you have any clue about this? Because, you know, I'm, st- I'm stumped. I've looked at this kind of mystery a fair few times and I just do not know what to make of it. What do you think? It is a very strange collection of items. The first two seem like throwaways. Uh, who cares about the hank of hair or the dead man's boots? Well, that kind of makes you think of like Howl's Moving Castle, where Calcifer says like the stronger the sacrifice, the bigger the spell. Maybe it's something like that that George is um, looking at. But uh, there actually is quite a lot of concern that Mel shows for Davos and uh, his son Devon. I think that's his name in this chapter where she like in particular is holding him back from going to Deepwood Mott because it's like, well, Davos has suffered enough. Does that mean that she's already feeling guilty about something she's going to do to Davos in the future? Maybe have somebody impersonate him to convince Stannis that maybe some little girl has to burn. Yeah, it's (laughs) (laughs) that is an interesting thought. Yeah, I like it. We'll have to wait for the Winds of Winter to see because, yeah, like I said, I was, I, I've looked at this so many times and just thought, what the hell? How did she, how would she get them? How would she get those finger bones, etc.? It just doesn't quite add up. But, you know, George can always pull out the surprises when he wants to. She turned herself into a seal and swum around Blackwater Bay until she dug them up out of the... Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, she found them in Blackwater Bay. That'd be pretty funny. I, but I, I do think that was one of the most surprising things on the reread is how much guilt Mel feels about things she has done to other people and mm. like what she has sacrificed for her goals. Mm-hmm. I think, at least in the show, you get the impression that she does not feel that weight too often, at least until she drops the collar. But in here, it's it's really all over the place. She is very concerned about, I mean, Davos, and she's trying to keep Mance safe, and she's thinking about Davos's son. I didn't think she gave a shit about Davos or his son, but it turns out she does. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. makes uh, all the more of an kind of interesting villain, ultimately. We'll, we'll talk about that, what will happen mm-hmm. to her in the long term. And um, going back to the relationship with Stannis, okay, so we we have a weekly poll on Twitter, and it's kind of lighthearted, and we said, we learn in her POV that Stannis has been keeping her bed warm in the course (laughs) of A Dance with Dragons. Stannis is not really implied to be the most kind of sexual person in the world. 
So why is he sleeping in Melisandre's bed rather than that of his wife? What's what's the poll results, Lady Gwyn? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. <laughs> I just want to first uh, say what, what Joe said about... Uh, Stannis not being the most sexual person in the world. <laughs> he thinks girls are gross. Stannis <laughs> does think girls are gross. <laughs> let's, like, let's just acknowledge that. <laughs> Anyways, all right, he does. So why? What you know? Why is he there sharing Melisandre's bed? Uh, we wanted to know. Um, so I am going to have to look at Twitter because I have to confess I forgot to write down the results. Oh, dear. Um, I know. I'm a failure. <laughs> um, the results were um, he 33% voted for he wants a shadow baby. 31% voted for he's scared to say no to Melisandre. 25% uh, voted for he's there to escape Salise's mustache. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or I mean, who maybe Salise in general. I don't know. And um, only 11% had the confidence in our man to say that he's a player. And in the kind of follow-on chat on Twitter, we did get some serious answers that we can weave into this conversation. Our patron B-word says that Melisandre makes Stannis feel powerful and that's why that's why he's gone to her. And Asha Not Yara suggests that Mel tells him it's necessary. You know, Stannis is doing his duty as the Azora High figure and, you know, he's got to sleep with her <laughs> to, uh, well, I don't know what she tells him. I'd be interested to know. Hey. Knowing what we know about Stannis, I, I mean, honestly, um, it's something about his duty uh, it has to play and in, come into play here. So him doing his duty sounds like a, you know, do your duty. Yeah, Stannis. and uh, unlike his wife, Stannis doesn't sound like the sort of character who would fall under the sway of a cult. So what exactly does Stannis see in Melisandre? Have you got... Have you got any insight to this, Joe? You're rubbing your hands. Uh, I get the chance to slag off Stannis. Whoa! Um, so, uh, well, not actually to insult. Well, maybe a little bit. Uh, I think the number one thing that Melisandre does for Stannis, well, the first thing was, um, which was laid out in the chapter, that he found her useful, at least at first, that her powers are verifiable and real and he'd be an idiot to turn them down Stannis is many things he's not an idiot but the second thing is that like if you look back to the way she talks about Stannis she she plays on his vanity that she's telling him you're better than Robert you're better than Renly you're the greatest king there you will save the world Stannis and some part of that is tied to his duty that like oh yes well obviously I must do that but a large part of his problem with Robert and Renly is that he feels inferior to them or well, at least definitely to Robert and Melisandre well she's hotter than Cersei she's hotter than anyone Renly will ever get and it's like he's getting the cool destiny He's going to be a hero of legend and he's got the most beautiful woman of any of them. It's there ha, there's elements of just Stannis feeling good about himself that Melisandre does for him that Solis does not. 
Especially because he was forced to marry Celise, that it was a political marriage. This right. is something he can have for himself. Yep. This is a woman that chose him. He thinks. Yes. Uh, yeah. The one woman who wants Stannis in the world, who also thinks he is the greatest man in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I was going to add, yeah, my mind is taken back to the Crescent prologue, the great introduction of Stannis and Co. on Dragonstone. And it's just such a miserable, boring, dull place, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's so Stannis. It's like his personality imprinted on this place. And then at the end, you, you see Melisandre and she's radiant and colourful and vibrant and exotic. And everything that Stannis is not. Yeah. And everything that Stannis doesn't have. So just an extension of w what Joe was getting at, really. It's, it's a very powerful thing to be told for Stannis that you are the most important Baratheon. That that's such a, that's such a big thing to say for him. Robert sucks. Yeah. You're the real one. You're the one everyone should <laughs> right. want. Stannis. You can't underestimate that factor in Stannis. If you're if we're gonna hear, sit here and be armchair psychologists of, of Stannis, um, yeah. You know his his sort of that that factor. You know him finally being better than his brothers. So if the following question. So why is Solice so accepting of Mel's influence on Stannis? What, I'll, I'll ask Joe again because he had such a good answer last time. What, what's, the, what's the parallel answer to Solice's, you know, succumbing to this kind of cultiness? Um, the only thing I can think of is that it, maybe it's like a, um, oh God, what's his name? Abraham and Hagar and... Um, I forget the real, I forget Abraham's wife's name, but maybe it's like a situation like that where it was like the, the biblical story of Hagar promising, I will give you the sons that your wife can't. And maybe it's something along those lines that George is playing on. It It's hard to understand what, or maybe like R'hllor has some kind of resurrection abilities. Maybe she's promising him, maybe she was promising Celise that like, you'll see your sons again. Or something crazy like that, but I find her relationship to Melisandre far more confusing than Stannis's. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about the show with what happened with Shireen, the infamous moment of season five, episode nine. Shireen was burned alive as a sacrifice to, for no good reason, ultimately. You know, the, the characters believe there was a good reason, but really, you know, it's in their imaginations, ultimately. Will Melisandre burn Shireen along similar lines? Joe, what do you think? Uh, I think definitely not, mostly because Stannis is so far away. Um, the, he was the real, I mean, Melisandre was telling him to do it, but you could always say no. He was the driving force in the show decision, uh, him and Solis, whereas it's only Solis and Mel at the moment. Um, and also... Like, it's not that grim for Stannis yet. Like, he still has a good chance of winning the Battle of Ice. He wins the Battle of Ice. He might have a chance to take Winterfell. So things have to go really wrong for him to get to the same point. Um, the only way I think it might be similar... I mean, obviously, I don't think Stannis is going to be killed by Bran in the woods either. Like, I think this is all going back to the Night Fort, maybe. That somehow Stannis ends up losing everything, retreats to the Night Fort, and... Maybe somewhere in there, Mel convinces them that burning Shireen is the only way to do this like grand magical thing. Because especially because she's been talking about in this chapter that like her powers are greater than ever. She can stop relying on the magics of pyromancers and charlatans. She can do real cool things. Like what if she convinces Stannis, who's maybe desperate after being having his ass kicked essentially in the north, that this is the only way. Like maybe like a um an Aragorn in the army of ghosts sort of thing. Like maybe she promises him something that big, but you have, or a dragon or something like that, but you have to give up Shireen to do it. Well, that's good. I thought you were going to disagree with, with our thinking. I, I think you, what you're saying is you, you kind of agree it's going to happen just in a different way. Yeah, it will, it will happen. I think that's, that's too far in the story already. Yeah. And I don't think Dan and Dave would do that on their own. That's such a, such a big thing to do but it, it seems like 
George has much different plans than Stannis. I mean, Dan and Dave had him lose to 20 good men in the middle of a field mm. and then be killed by Brienne in the woods. Stannis, at the very least, has better strategic planning in that in the books. Yeah, I, I'll agree with you that the path to Stannis doing it is hard to figure out at this juncture. But mm. as an endgame, it seems, you know, as a huge plot point that that it seems like it's going to go down at some point, okay? So, um, you, you said some of the differences. I wanted to talk about Patchface because uh, in our prophecy episode, this was a you know a good while ago. We, we wondered if Patchface, uh, Melisandre, seeing Patchface with blood on his mouth and thinking he's evil, will in fact be him defending Shireen, and you know maybe getting a bloody oh. mouth in the process. Um, what, that's an, that's, what do you think of that idea? That's a really good one. I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, we do know that Melisandre consistently misinterprets visions for herself. Exactly. So, I mean, like, in this chapter alone, she considers Bloodraven and Bran the, the great villain, the great other. And it's like, I like maybe they are evil-ish or they have different priorities than her, but they're definitely not the others. They're not the great other. So her misinterpreting Patchface would be... that. That works thematically. Uh, and I like that. when we see Patchface, people tend to say that he's creepy and whatever. But if you just look at look at him, you you know, and mm-hmm. f- forget the kind of noise and the vision that Melisandre saw, he's he's quite an obedient. You you know you know he's he's not really a nasty evil guy that's going to bite someone's neck or you know suddenly launch into someone right it's not really in character is it with his with his visions and his his prophecies he's not really he's not really as creepy as what people think maybe what do you do you agree yeah yeah i mean he's i don't know if, uh he's still a little creepy because of the things that he says and he i mean he obviously does actually prophesize things um but i i definitely think that he's not ever shown to have um, evil intent, and he certainly is shown to love Shireen. Uh, so, you know, as much as I think he's just kind of a pathetic figure, and, you know, if he's really that devoted to Shireen, what do we think he's going to do when she's in danger? You know, it really, it makes sense in that sort of, if you kind of extend people's behaviors outwards, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, he, he could be the only person sticking up for Shireen in the end because, you you know, the sway of Melisandre's cult is so strong. It takes a character like Patchface, who at least kind of in his own way thinks for himself to to say, no, this is wrong, you know. And meanwhile, Stannis and Solis could, could be part of it as they were in the show. Okay, will this be like... The Red Wedding kind of thing. Like we called it in our episode, a coup de theatre, where George pulls the rug from under our feet. He's done this. He did this with Ned's, Ned's getting beheaded in book one. And in book three, we had the, uh, maybe not the end, but we had a similar moment with the Red Wedding. Is this the, 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 next, the next coup de theatre? What do you think, Joe? Um, it's definitely set up, especially if George, he, it doesn't have to be true, but if he implies that somehow John's life is being paid for with Shireen's, like it, that doesn't actually have to be true. We know that, um, the, the kiss of life requires no sacrifice, but that doesn't mean it can't be something that's implied or hinted at, especially if he, if he does like back to back chapters, that kind of thing. It could be really heartbreaking. And also, um, to add on to the, uh, a thing I thought of again because I'm still thinking about it after my answer. Um, it's she's cre- like Patrice is creepy in the same way like the ghost of Highheart and Maggie the Frog are creepy. It's they're they they just see the future. They're just saying weird things. It just so happens the people that are listening to those other characters are taking them seriously. No one's taking Patrice seriously, so they think he's a weirdo. But th- I think he's no more weird than the other ones. Um, but yeah, especially because Stannis is has been sort of dancing around the idea that he's going to kill children for some larger goal for so long. And it's such a big part of the story. Like, um, even with Daenerys, like it's implied somehow by Miriam Asdor that Rago's life paid for the dragons. If there's some kind of echo for that, but instead of Rago, this kind of 
child nobody knows. It's Shireen, this character we like. That would be a George way of punching you in the heart. Interesting. And and if if we see this event, and it is the kind of climax in some ways to to the Winds of Winter, whose P, who's POV is this going to be in? Lady Gwyn, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I don't know, because I think... I don't think it can be seen from Melisandre's point of view. So that limits who it could be. I mean, um, it could be Asha is kind of the first person I thought of because I don't see uh, Davos being there because Davos would probably find some way to stop it, uh, given that he's actually done that exact same thing in the past. so, you know, who else is who else is around to be a point of view to this? Um, I've in our episode, our most recent episode, we kind of made the case that Ash is going to be with Stannis for longer than you might think, because um, they have some unfinished business and because we really need to have a person that that kind of sticks with him. And I could see that happening. Um, not so sure about Theon. Um, I, I think he's going elsewhere uh, won't turn this into a Theon discussion but um, yeah so that's I mean that's who who I think because I, I there are really very few options <laughs> of who you could see it from so. well it's very interesting to think about because unlike the TV show when when we see it in someone's POV it's it's kind of colored by their perception so it really is, you know, the, the difference between it being in Asher and Theon is two different personalities. Could it be in Mel's? I try, you know, I try to think if it was in Mel's know. point I mean, of view, what she's thinking. If you think about the fact that, you know, Asha's uh, Dance with Dragons chapter, her final one was called The Sacrifice. Uh, you know, there obviously that chapter referred to both her you know, as the potential sacrifice, because there's all these threats swirling around her, but also we saw an actual burning and an actual sacrifice in that chapter. But, you know, that could be something that, you know, carries over into a future, uh, into a future situation. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it it could be Alessandra, but gosh, like you said, I would, I, I would, hate to think of being in her head while this was going down so yeah it, it might be better to to view it not in melisandre's head uh, if you get my meaning and our our patron judson bates asks if mel is going to redeem herself after burning shireen so what what would she have to do to be considered a kind of gray Oof. character after something this horrific like the the worst taboo in the whole universe it was going to go down how does mel pull herself up by the bootstraps and kind of redeem herself in any way what do you think joe um hmm that's a good question also the pov thing uh the one that would hurt the most which is usually what george chooses would be davos but i think the only thing that would hurt mo- more than davos seeing it is that da- if it's happening off page and then davos discovering it and like his um him trying to puzzle it out and trying to get answers out of people and then maybe stumbles upon the some some object of hers that he recognizes like that would be the only way it would hurt more than if it was his mind um which is usually a good way of predicting george like what do you think he's gonna do i don't know what would suck the most to read okay he's gonna do that (laughs) uh in terms of how to redeem herself um i i think there's a way to do it in the uh laid out in this chapter her one pov is that so often in this she is scrambling for political power. She's scrambling for her own survival. She's scrambling to stay in her position. The only way I think would be is as, as a character, she actually walks the walk that she puts out there, that she actually does give up this position of being the, the hand of the king, the, the king's consort kind of thing, and just focuses on the mission and trying to make sure the others don't come. I mean, like, season eight did sort of a version of that, where she finally dropped all the the pretense of trying to be 
the one pushing Azora High forward and just trying to help. That, I think that's the only way for her to have any kind of redemption. Yes, talking about Game of Thrones, this kind of self-sacrifice. For me, she has to kind of prove that she lives up to her own standards, that she's not a hypocrite. And she she has to do something in the you know the war for the dawn self self sacrificial that really makes a difference and you know kind of helps to save humanity. Even that's not gonna wash away the evil. You know, as Stannis thinks, you can't wash away the bad, right? What do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I think you know I think you're right, and uh, <laughs> Melisandre herself would tell you that an onion that's half black is fully rotten you know so um you know that's her she's a black and white thinker i I think that um she from her point of view she would say that there is no redemption for acts like that um but i think you know george wants us to to consider people as um you know what are the shades of gray and what what motivates people to do things and you know if, if they have um good motivations to do evil things does that somehow change it this is these are deep philosophical questions that that george poses that we all are stuck thinking about and we're probably not going to solve in a 60 minute live stream even if this is all we talked about (laughs) (laughs) yeah and going back to um the earlier discussion i think that maybe revealing herself her true you know dropping the (laughs) <laughs> the uh, the glamour in the last moment and self-sacrificing then, you know, revealing herself. That, that's quite poetic. So anyway, let's um, let's move on. In A Dance with Dragons, we see small hints that Masa- Melisandre might come to believe John is Azora High. If she jumps from the Stannis ship, do we think she'll switch to Team John? What do you think, Joe? It's a it's a good question because um, I'm pretty sure she's unaware Daenerys exists at this point, right? Like, yes, that, that's not information that has come to her. I think if she knew Daenerys existed and that the dragons were out there, like Makoro and Bonero, you got to figure she would jump ship immediately. She would find her way to Danny to be like, "I will steward your way to." being a Zorahai to save the world, much like Makoro is apparently trying to do, riding Victorian's boats to Daenerys. Um, but it's it's very clear that she is already linking John and Stannis in her head. She's treating them the same way. She's trying the same tricks. Um, and I, I think at some point it's going to hit her. Like she complains a lot in her POV that she wants to see Stannis. She wants Stannis. Where's her bald cutie? But she can't find him. It's she's only seeing Jon Snow and death over and over again. And I got to figure like the with the John Wolf John image, at some point, this is going to start to sink in with her that there's something more to this kid that the flames are trying to show her that she really needs to um, stop letting her what she wants cloud her visions. Yeah, that's that's well put. And I, I think we'll continue this. Uh, she She looks looks into the. You, you know, she looks into the future and all she saw was snow when she's thinking about Azor High with a capital mm-hmm. S. The clues <laughs> are there, so she is uh, likely to follow along. But I, again, as you say, with Daenerys in the picture, who knows who she would choose out of those two. Uh, next, I, I want to take a tangent and talk about a vision that she had in her... POV, a face took shape within the hearth, Stannis, she thought, for just a moment. But no, these were not his features. A wooden face, corpse white. Was this the enemy? A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. He sees me. Beside him, a boy with a wolf's face threw back his head and a hound. Why is Mel seeing... Blood Raven and and Bran. Why why is this vision coming to her, Lady Gwyn? What do you think? Because he's her daddy. Oh. <laughs> Hashtag Melny Sea Star. <laughs> uh, <you> know, <laughs> so 
sorry. Seriously, <laughs> uh, this is another line of connection between two completely fascinating characters, which is, um, you know, considering the possibility that um, that she's as aged or, or maybe more so than he is, uh, depending on who she is. I, I think it's it's an in it's interesting to have this these lines drawn, and this isn't the only time they are drawn between these the two sorcerers. Um, you know, that's um, I don't know why she's seeing him. I just I find it fascinating that yeah, the dynamics are just so interesting. Both parties are using magic to spy and see things to pre prepare. To face the others, they sound like they're on the same team, right? But but there's Mel, and it says, "Is he the enemy?" That's her first thought. Mel being Mel. So, what do you think of these dynamics, Joe? Is this a setup for something? Um, well, for one thing, I think it's supposed to definitely drive home the idea that Melisandre's interpretations of what she's seeing is definitely flawed. I mean, like we knew that already, but a lot part of a large part of this chapter is like, don't believe what she thinks she is seeing, but trust the images themselves, which are real. And I also I, I went back and looked to what were the questions she asked where she got those visions. She said, "Show me Stannis. Show me your king, your instrument." Well, the king and his instrument. You could also see that as Bloodraven and Bran, couldn't you? Br uh, Bloodraven, the king of the Weirwoods, Bran, his instrument, or the other way around, where if the show's right or what they said George said like King Bran just like when she asked to see Azor Ahai and she only sees snow it would be interesting if the flames are answering her questions but not in the way that she thinks of and there's also I also really liked the the notation that he sees me nobody else sees Mel in her in her visions like she sees Jon Snow all the time she's not like oh Jon's looking at me she sees Stannis it's not like oh Stannis is locking eyes Bloodraven's active He's active in this encounter with them. So yeah, like you're talking about how they're both using magic and prophecy and all these things. I mean, it would make sense if there was some sort of like backroom connection that led, no matter how you got into this world, everybody can see each other at some level. Is it like when Varamir sees sees Bran and he thinks a wog can see a wog or yes. the other way around? Yeah, exactly. It's the same kind of, you know, you can smell your own type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. I think it's something along those lines that all these magical systems and ways of seeing the future are not really that different. Like, what's the difference between a green dream and a dragon dream? I think it's just how what you name them. They seem to be the same thing. Okay, so we look forward to seeing if Mel gets any more thoughts about Bloodraven because of these fascinating dynamics. And let's end today's live stream with a final question. M Melisandre always seems confident around others, yet in her POV, we see that she's more insecure than that. So what's it like to be Melisandre? What, what's she feeling? Lady Gwyn, what, who is Melisandre when you're in her head? Yeah. Oh, thanks so much for that. Um, she's... I think she's someone who's, you know, I said earlier, lonely. You said insecure. I think she's really struggling. She she believes deeply in whatever her mission is, um, you know, to find Azor Ahai, to save the world, to, you know, whatever, whatever it is she's doing. She believes so deeply in that um, that she knows she has to do it at all costs. But uh, there's still that always that little voice in the back of her head saying you're not quite doing this right <laughs> so making her kind of insecure and she doesn't have anyone to lean on like you know think about it if we're um if i'm at work in real life or if i'm you know doing an episode of radio estros we have people that we can that we can talk to about our problems you know like we have friends that we can lean on or um she doesn't have any of that so I think really what it comes down to is that she is a, a singular person who doesn't, um, who's got this m gigantic mission that's bigger than life itself. And um, she's trying to accomplish it all by herself. Yeah, she doesn't even seem to have a oneness with the other red, red god people. Mm. And I think George has said that she's, you know, she, she's flying solo. 
Have you got any thoughts, Joe? Uh, what I got from um, rereading this was just the intense stress she lives under, where mm-hmm. it's not just the stress that she feels the end of the world hinges on her actions, which she does, which is a crazy thing to put on yourself mentally, but she's wearing so many masks and she's putting up such so, like even beyond the glamour like her true self and how she's like i think the the one telling moment was when uh, like i talked about earlier when she was talking to john about the towers and he's like it's east watch and in her head mel's like well i don't think it's east watch but she goes yes of course that's it and that kind of self-deception that she has to do all the time must just be absolutely backbreaking for her and you kind of know that um with where she says, like, uh, she hopes she never dreams again. She actually hates falling asleep. Well, for most of us, it's because falling asleep in your dreams, I mean, for the her, it's maybe prophetic, but it could also be, like, trying to make sense of your world. And I can't imagine that Mel on any given day has, like, a real firm handle on, what she, on what's going to happen because it's so, it's so uncertain. She's built her life on these stupid visions in a flame. It's not even like she has something she's following. It's everything's like quicksand and fire underneath her feet. There's nothing to hold on to. And she's just kind of like riding an ocean of flames towards the future. Well put. I think that Melisandre, unlike every cult leader on planet Earth, you know, is true to her her own beliefs. The problem is that her beliefs are bullshit. (laughs) I mean, like, just a little bit. That's the problem. <laughs> okay, so that's the end of our live stream. Thanks for joining us. Um, Joe Magician, thank you so much for being here today. You've been a really great guest. Oh. You know, you, you've had some really sharp answers. Really enjoyed having you on. Yeah. Um, let it not be the last time. Mm. Why, don't, why don't you tell us about your YouTube channel and any other projects that you'd like people to know about? Uh, sure. So you can find me on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Joe Magician. Um, I tend to post a lot of um, theories and analysis, sort of. There's some theories, but they're sort of standalone things. Uh, the one I'm working on right now, I mean, I've talked a lot about magic, and clearly I have a lot of passion for it. But the one I'm working on now is how young Griff in The Winds of Winter will take Storm's End like it seems like he does. Um, uh, Jeff, our friend Jeff, Brendan Beefish, um, he wrote his awesome Blood of the Conqueror series a few years ago. And I, I read the last one. I was like, what about this instead with an idea from Fire and Blood? And I, I tend to do that kind of thing. Just like whatever is interesting. That's what I make my videos on. And whatever they are is very varied. Um, I'm also doing weekly, uh, quor- I'm calling them quarantine streams just because... I thought it was a fun name. Uh, Ashea from History of Westeros came up with it. Uh, right before this one, I was on with Aziz of History of Westeros. So Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'll be on for like two-ish hours. And then you can come right here yeah. and watch uh, Rhea oh, Westeros just... with that our lovely guest you have. <laughs> yeah, that's um, This is one of the funny things where people make funny. It's like Matt has so many titles. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna do the rest of them. Uh, obviously, I'm a co-host on Maester Monthly, the podcast we put on. Uh, for the moderators of the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Uh, we have a new episode coming out soon. We recorded another one because there's a problem with the first one. Whatever. Um, <laughs> and you can also find me as a um, a feature writer, which I haven't done for a little bit, but maybe I will for, um, for uh, Watchers on the Wall. Um, and I'm also doing weekly Crusader Kings 2 streams on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Aziz has been doing some too. He got me hooked on it. And (laughs) now I can't stop because I'm trying to make the Danes be the kings of Westeros. And I had Bloodraven in my court and Shear Seastar and Damon Blackfire and now a Bittersteel. And it's just lovely. Awesome. Definitely check that out. We uh, got to play a little bit of that with Aziz uh, last fall. So... Oh, back when game. we could back when we could visit with friends. But oh. <laughs> yeah. At some point you will. Yeah, exactly. So in the meantime, we have friends that are streaming it. So, you know, definitely check it out. Uh thank you so much everyone for uh joining us. We are um very pleased to have you all here. Uh, we want to make an announcement right now about next week. So we just started these um, these streams, which we'll be doing, um, you know, to the further foreseeable future. 
Uh, next week, we are going to continue doing the point of view characters that sync up with our most recent regular episode. Our guest next week will be poor Quentin, which we're very pleased about. And uh, we'll be talking about Theon. So definitely come back for that. Yeah, we'll be back next week and every Saturday for the foreseeable future. Talking the Winds of Winter POVs and trying our best to bring the community together as we all continue to weather the current storm. Don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe. And thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in. Hope you're all safe and see you next time. That's right. Uh, bye for now. We'll see you all uh, if you care to join us over at 8 o'clock tonight at the History of Westeros channel playing Quiplash to benefit Ice and Firecon. Thanks again for joining us. See you later. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.